Good to be with you this morning. We've been studying in Romans 9 through 11. And today we come to chapter 11. We're going to take the whole chapter. And uh, it's a very significant chapter theologically and also missiologically. Because uh, in the history of the Christian church, there's been a checkered would be a positive word to use, a checkered history of how the church has dealt with our Jewish neighbors. And the relationship between Judaism and Christianity has always been one that's been nuanced. And sometimes it's been violent. And then there are things that have been done under the name of Judaism or under the name of Christianity that have been brutal uh, to the other party. Certainly in the first century, uh, the Christians, uh, the first half of the first century, especially the Christians in their early days experienced some very severe persecution from Jewish folks. And then for the next 2,000 years, it seems like the Christians were wasting no time trying to get caught up persecuting Jewish folks. Especially, we can think, during the Middle Ages with the Inquisition and how uh, Jews were taken by so-called Christian nations and uh, forced to confess Christ or face uh, exile or punishment, torture, or death. And then one can look into the 20th century with the Holocaust. And once again, so many Christian church people caved under Hitler and allowed six million Jews to be put to death. And uh, we've seen other times and seasons when there have been uh, anti-Semitic comments or attitudes among Christian people, including, as I've mentioned here before, uh, the great Martin Luther in the 16th century wrote some awful uh, anti-Semitic things. So there's been tension between these two religious groups uh, ever since the founding of Christianity. And it's important for us to listen to the Apostle Paul because, remember, he's writing from Corinth. He's writing to the Roman church that has Jews and Gentiles in it. And from the very beginning, there was hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And for them to be in one body in the church was an amazing thing. Nowhere else was this happening but in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that they needed a deep understanding of each other. The Jews need to understand the Gentiles and welcome them. That was the big challenge in the, in, in the uh, first council of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And then, of course, uh, the Gentiles needed to understand and appreciate and honor the Jews and their background. So this chapter is very important. You'll see later on when Paul in chapters 14 and 15 talks about some ethical principles and how Jews and Gentiles naturally come at these differently, but how they are to uh, honor each other and respect each other in the midst of that. You'll see that that uh, sociological, relational uh, mandate for Jews and Gentiles comes out of a theological conviction. Uh, that is rooted here in Romans 9 through 11, especially 11. Also, uh, Romans 11 is important to us because there's a lot of speculation, a lot of wondering about what's going to happen with the nation of Israel, what happens to individual Jews and so on, and is there some way for them to be saved, etc. And Paul deals with that in Romans 9, 10, 11, once again, particularly in 11. Now, before we read chapter 11, and take this time to, to race through it, which is all we'll have time to do. Let's remember the context. Uh, in Romans 9, Paul addresses the question as to whether God, in this Christian plan of salvation, has abandoned the promises that He made to Israel in the Old Testament. And you can see why that question would be asked, why Paul needs to address this. Paul actually addressed this everywhere he went. It just ends up in Romans in a very thorough way in writing. But Paul had to defend this uh, and address this question wherever he went because the Jews felt immediately if God is bringing in Jews and Gentiles, well, what, what about these Old Testament promises? So Romans 9, you remember, uh, begins with that question. And we saw in Romans 9 that God is not unjust, He's not unfair, and He's not broken His promises that the promises to Israel were always for the elect Jews within Israel, that you always had only a remnant. And the same could be said today in the church. You don't have every member of every 
Christian church uh, an elect person. The church ha- is suffused with unbelief. There are unbelievers that join churches. So there'll be a remnant of the elect within God's people. And Paul makes that remnant argument. And the election, the unconditional election argument in Romans 9 to say, it was always this way. So don't tell me that you think God's breaking His promises because He's cut off the Jews in our day because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. He was always cutting off because the Jews, Romans 10, as we saw two weeks ago, in Romans 10 he says, because the Jews have always experienced unbelief, just like the church of our own day experiences unbelief. So what does God do? Judgment comes upon unbelief. So he says God didn't break His promises. The problem was that Israel ceased to believe. Most of it, or a lot of it. So because of their unbelief, they were cut off. So that's the argument that that's, he sustained up until now. Now he's going to kind of come back and say, but now let's look at the situation with our Jewish brethren. He's speaking to Gentiles. And he's going to show them how they are to continue in their evangelism and how they are to expect more Jews to come into the church. And we should have the same attitude today. So let's look at Romans 11. I think we'll just take a paragraph at a time and look at them because it's a, a lengthy text. So let's just look at the first 10 verses for now. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Well, let's look at this first point. Uh, Roman numeral number one, God has not rejected Israel. And basically what Paul is saying here in these first 10 verses is that, yes, there is a rejection of some in Israel. And the reason is because of unbelief. But that doesn't mean that he's rejected Israel nor forsaken all of his promises. In other words, the rejection is not total. So you can look throughout the Old Testament, including Isaiah chapter 6, where when Isaiah is called and the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And then Isaiah gets his commission to go preach, and he is told that the preaching will only harden the hearts of his hearers. Wow, that's exciting. Go evangelize, and you'll just be sending people to hell as you evangelize. That's great. And Isaiah says, how long is this going to go on? And he says, until, it's, until Israel becomes a stump, until a tenth is left. So 90% of Israel during those days of apostasy, during Isaiah's days, got cut off and only a tenth was left. That's the remnant. Well, based on what you can see going on in the church in America, it may get down to the same thing. We may be down to a tenth before, before this is all over. But that doesn't mean that God will no longer have a church or that He's rejected all of His promises to the bride of Christ. No, it means that His judgment falls first upon the house of God. And there is cutting that takes place and there is rejection that takes place with people who apostatize. And that's what had happened to the Jewish nation. They had apostatized. They were in the church and then they rejected the Word of God and the promises of God and the Messiah of God. And so they're cut off. And the same is true today. If there are churches that reject the Word of God reject the ethic of God, reject the Messiah of God, they will be cut off. They're they're in the act of being cut off right now. That's what apostasy means. You turn from the faith once delivered, and then God in His judgment cuts you off from from His people. So 
Paul is making that argument here. God has not rejected Israel. And you can see, uh, A, he has preserved a remnant of Israel by his grace. What's the first example Paul comes up with? Himself. He says, don't think that God has rejected Israel. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. And God has included me in his kingdom. So Paul begins with himself. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm still a Jew. Always will be a Jew. Proudly a Jew. You can see it in Romans 9 and elsewhere. Paul claims his Jewish heritage. He doesn't cease to be a Jew. He doesn't cease to enjoy the traditions, his Jewish traditions. Paul continues to worship at the, at the temple. Now the temple no longer exists and is not meant to be rebuilt. But in Paul's day, it had not, the, the judgment of God had not come as predicted yet because that happened in 70 AD. Paul's writing here in 57 AD. And this is on his third missionary journey. And we know he's going back to Jerusalem to pay vows at the temple. So Paul's still enjoying his Jewishness. So when Jews become, become Christians, they don't cease to be Israelis or cease to be Jewish or cease to enjoy many of their traditions. Uh, that's a, a big misunderstanding among folks. Sometimes Gentiles think they should give up their Jewishness. But Paul says, no, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. But then he also says, and God has not rejected his people, verse 2. All of his people whom he foreknew. There's that word foreknew. He loved them before they even came to existence. He foreloved them. He knew them before they even existed. It's in his predestination. So don't tell me that he's, he's cut off people that he, he's known from all eternity. And then he gives this example of Elijah. And he says, you know, Elijah thought that he was the only one. He thought that the northern kingdom of Israel was being just completely demolished under the kingship of Ahab and his consort, uh, his mistress, his wife, Jezebel, who was the Baal worshiper. And Jezebel brings in all this idolatry and, sets, and destroys all the worship places of Jehovah. And she establishes all these altars and creates a presidential uh, clergy group of 850 prophets of, uh, uh, of these idols and tries to establish Israel as a pagan nation. And Elijah, you know, stands up for the truth. And of course, he's being sought out and persecuted. And finally, he confronts Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets and wins a mighty victory. And then Elijah, after that, goes into sort of a, the pit of depression, as you'll remember. And he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And now they seek my life. It's called depression, spiritual depression. I'm the only one left. And God doesn't say, no, I've got a handful of others. He doesn't say, I've got like Gideon, army of 300, Elijah. He says, I've got 7,000 believers. That's a pretty big church, isn't it? And Elijah had no idea. So even in Israel's worst moment, God has preserved thousands of people for himself. So God is saying, he has preserved a remnant of Israel by His grace. But please notice, it is a remnant, verse 5, chosen by grace. Grace. And he says in verse 6, if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of the way the Jews are trying to be saved. It is no longer on the basis of their works or their conformity to their traditions. You're not saved by being baptized. You're not saved by joining a church. You're not saved by being circumcised if you're a Jew. You're not saved by the dietary laws or keeping the Sabbath or all the works, even the good works that we're supposed to do. They are not a sufficient foundation for you to be delivered uh, from the fires of hell. No, there's only one way you can be delivered and that is through faith in Jesus Christ who is perfect. And when you believe in Him, you get His record of perfect righteousness. That's the grace of God that He gives you everything for nothing. And Paul says, look, make it clear. There is a remnant, but that remnant is chosen by grace. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're Jewish. It has nothing to do with the fact that, that, that they go to church. It has to do with his grace toward them. And then he emphasizes later, it's by faith. And in Romans 10, we saw clearly the reason for the apostate church to get cut off, they cease to believe. They cease to trust Him. And like I say, you can see it today. When folks create another sexual ethic and promote it, 
When folks create a rule, a principle out of thin air, that a woman for some reason has a right to her own body so that she can kill another human being living inside her body, and churches just make up rules and say that's a moral rule, when they do that, they've just chosen another religion. They've apostatized. They're cut off. And the same thing with the Jews. They had decided they were going to establish their, their righteousness on their own self-righteousness, things they made up, their traditions from the rabbis. They were cut off because they ceased to believe in Messiah. And then look at verses 7 through 10. You'll see he has preserved a remnant, but he has also hardened the hearts of the stubborn Israelites. It's true that God judicially hardens those who, who harden their hearts toward him. So oftentimes you'll see extreme wickedness that's hardly believable that's being promoted in certain churches. You say, how in the world could that happen? Well, as soon as you turn your back on the Lord, oftentimes there is a judicial hardening so they become blind in their stupor and they can't think anymore. They don't want to and God furthermore hardens them. Now we saw that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened because he hardened his own heart. And then God added to the hardening and his judicial hardening. And what we're finding is that that can be true with his own people who associate themselves outwardly with the church like Israel did with themselves. And when they turn uh, their backs on God, there is a judicial hardening. And you'll see that throughout the scriptures. And this principle is probably quoted out of the, the Old Testament more than any other text. That The text I've cited there in Isaiah 6 is probably the most often quoted text. For example, when Jesus explains to his disciples why he teaches in parables. He says, so that hearing they won't hear and seeing they won't see. So we love the parables because they help us to understand. They're beautiful stories that bring the truth to light. But for the unbeliever, Jesus said, I'm teaching in parables so the unbeliever experiences further hardening. So that even in Jesus' teaching, there was judicial hardening going on. You could see the Pharisees and the Sadducees got angrier and angrier and angrier as every month elapsed. So that both things are happening with the truth of God. The hearts of the believers are becoming softer and gentler. And the hearts of the unbelievers are becoming harder as they're exposed to it. Apart from His grace and regeneration. So that's the first section. God has not rejected Israel. That is, the rejection is not total. He has not said, I'm taking all my Old Testament promises and throwing them into the ocean. Not at all. He's keeping every word that he spoke. Now, secondly, let's look at verses 11 through 24. Look back to your Bibles. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? All right, let's look at this. God is not only not rejecting Israel, He's enlarging Israel through the inclusion of the Gentiles. He loves Israel. He's made promises to Israel. He's going to keep every one of them. And Israel's going to be more glorious than Israel ever imagined before the time of Christ. He's enlarging Israel. And you see this because I mentioned here Genesis 12, 2, for example, where we have the call of Abraham. And some years ago we studied Genesis and we saw that Abraham was called out of total paganism. His whole family was pagan. And God says, I'm going to make you a great blessing so that you will bless the nations. So he was blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. So from the very beginning of Israel, it was meant to be an evangelistic religion because it was the religion of the true God. And God wants to reach all the nations. He made that clear from the very beginning with Abraham. But it wasn't long until the Israelites uh, became just like uh, some... Uh, Christians in America. All they want to do is build up the walls and keep other people out. People that are not like them and don't have anything to do with them. I just want people like me in my neighborhood and in my city and my nation. And Israel became just like that. And they did not pursue the calling that was upon them at the call of Father Abraham. In Isaiah 49.6, where Isaiah is speaking about the great future that is coming for Israel, God says to them through the prophet, it's too small a thing for you just to reach the tribes of Israel. No, you're to be a light to the Gentiles. So in the Old Testament, very clearly it was preached over and over again that they were to be a blessing to all the nations and seek to include them in the knowledge of God. And they failed to do so. So God now is taking hold of the reins through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Israel is going to be enlarged as they should have been in the first place. So first of all, Israel's hardening in verses 11 through 16, has led to Gentile inclusion. So Paul goes through a very interesting argument here. He says, yes, there has been a partial rejection of Israel because what God is doing, He is hardening their hearts at the same time that He's bringing in the Gentiles. And the only Jews who are coming in are those who are going to be taught that they are brothers and sisters of these crazy Gentiles. So the Jews, who don't want anything to do with the Gentiles, are rejecting Messiah. And those two things go together. You listening? If you reject the horizontal aspects of the gospel, you're rejecting the vertical aspects of the gospel. If you reject reconciliation with all races and ethnic groups, you're rejecting reconciliation with God. So the Jews that that rejected the inclusion of Gentiles ended up being the same bunch that were rejecting Messiah. Those two things go together. So Paul says God has hardened a portion of Israel, the unbelieving apostate Israel. He's hardened their hearts for the inclusion of the Gentiles. But he says, look, God is up to something even more wonderful. He is, he's still after those Jews who have been cut off because through the smiles on the faces of the Gentiles who've been seeking for something in life and never found it until they heard of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and received salvation in Him and enjoy the fullness of Christ and are enjoying life now for the first time in their lives. They have a meaning and a purpose to their lives. And the rejected Jews are looking at those smiling Gentiles and becoming quite jealous. And so you see it here. He's saying that Israel's hardening is leading to Gentile inclusion, but God is up to something even with the Gentile inclusion. But the Gentiles are being brought in. And he says to them, look, if Israel's hardening and the inclusion of Gentiles is wonderful, How much more wonderful would it be if we have the inclusion of the Gentiles and the inclusion of the Jews? Wouldn't that really be wonderful? And he makes the case. He says, if the dough is offered, uh, uh, then the whole lump 
will be holy. If the root, which is the Jewish roots, if it's holy, look, everything will be wonderful. How wonderful would it be if all the rejected Jews turned to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, Paul has a vision for evangelism. He never loses his vision. He says, yes, we know what God is doing. He has not broken His promises. He's acting just like He always has. But now the sign of faith is whether one believes in Jesus Christ. So it's in Christ now that the rejection is taking place. Before the incarnation, they were rejected for other forms of apostasy. But then look at verses 17 through 22. The Gentile inclusion is not irreversible. He says, look, you you Gentiles, let me talk to you just a minute. You should be very careful not to be arrogant for a couple of reasons. Number one, don't you realize that you are a bunch of wild olive shoots? And you're being grafted into a cultivated tree. Now, those of you who are, you know, agriculturalists, you know, you normally don't take an inferior branch and graft it into a superior uh, tree. You do just the opposite. You take a superior branch and graft it into an inferior tree, right? That, That way you get more superior fruit out of an inferior stump. God is doing just the opposite. He takes this exquisite, cultivated tree, this olive tree, which in the Old Testament always represents Israel, and then He takes these wild olive shoots and grafts them in to this cultivated tree. That's what you are. He says, so first of all, don't get up on your high horse. Uh, you, you you (laughs) You were a worthless wild olive shoot. No one wanted to eat your olives, and we just put you in to this cultivated tree. You see, you've been grafted into Israel. That's what he's saying. And the way the Gentiles become Christians is that we get grafted into the Israel of God so that we're now the Israel of God. So he says, don't get, don't get uppity on me and start looking down on Jews. And secondly, he says, you know, the Jews got cut off because of unbelief. Do you think you can't be cut off? Do you think that you can just plant churches and then those churches can just believe whatever they want to believe and those denominations can do whatever they want to do and they'll be just fine? No, when they turn their back on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will be cut off even though they were visibly in the church of Christ. We have to remember this. We have to have the mind of Christ and see beyond mere human denominational and ecclesiastical structures. God looks at the heart. And so he's saying, don't get uppity because if he can cut off a natural branch, he can for sure cut you wild people off when when you don't believe. You're in by faith and you stay in by sustaining your faith. So you can baptize your children and your children can baptize their children. But if they don't believe, they get cut off. They may be visible church people, but they're cut off because they did not believe. And how tragic it is for some of us who grew up in the church and they were rejected what we heard and then we got cut off like I did. But you know what? I got grafted back in. <laughs> we'll get to that. And see, in verses 23 through 24, he's saying that Israel's unbelief is not irreversible. So if your belief is not irreversible, in other words, if your inclusion is not irreversible, their ex- ex- exclusion is not irreversible. And he says, God is able to do this. Look at the language here uh, in, um, where is it? Somebody call it out. 23. Yeah. Uh, God has the power to graft them in again. God's able to do this. So some of you are thinking, and some of you may have a Jewish background yourself. And if you have a Jewish background and you're a Christian, you know that God does miracles. Well, uh, What about our our other Jewish friends who have not yet come to Christ? You think, you know, they've already got their religion. Uh, Christians have persecuted them for 2,000 years. Uh, They don't want to lose their traditions or their ethnicity, and they're afraid they're going to lose that by becoming Christians. There's tremendous hostility toward Christians who have mistreated them for thousands of years. How could they ever become Christians? I'll tell you how. God is able to do it. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't you Gentiles either get uppity or get neglectful. 
Because God is able to graft these natural olive branches back into their own tree. If He grafted you in, He can for sure graft them in. So He's making an argument here for Jewish evangelism and for opening your heart and welcoming people of all ethnic groups, including Jewish ethnic groups. Isn't it amazing that we started off as a Jewish church for 2,000 years and after the coming of Christ, we become a Gentile church. And I ask, where are the Jews? Well, we've persecuted them. We've dismissed them. We've looked down upon them. We've excluded them. That's the opposite of what we were taught, both by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. So Paul here is making an argument that what God is about is not breaking His promises to Israel, not excluding the Gentiles, but certainly not excluding the Jews and bringing them into one olive tree in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at verses 25 through 36 as we uh, take these last 20 minutes. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way... All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a, a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now what he has been saying here is that Israel's rejection is not only not total, but it is not final. It is a partial and temporary rejection of some Israelites. That does not mean that he's broken his Old Testament promises. That's his point. And his sub-point is he has not rejected Israel. You can't use that language about God's relationship to them. But we're going to see in verses 25 through 36 that all Israel is saved to the glory of God's grace. He uses this language, all Israel. What does he mean by this? Well, let's take a look at it. In verses 25 through 27, what we're being taught is the, that elect Gentiles are being gathered into a new multi-ethnic Israel. Elect Gentiles are being gathered into a new multi-ethnic Israel. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, do not want you to be unaware of this ministry. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he's saying, what God is doing is bringing you guys in. These are happening at the same time. At the same time that His judgment goes upon His church, He's bringing in some non-church people. You can see this through history, how this has happened. How when He wants to reach a people, He will sometimes judge His own church in order for the inclusion of these folks. It's very interesting to me. You can look at the Hispanic phenomenon uh, here in our country. And how so many conservative Christian folks who are acting a lot like uh, the, the, the Ju Judaistic people in the first century are trying to be monoethnic, want to exclude them. Now I understand there are many, there, uh, there's, there are public policy issues, legal issues. I'm not getting into that. I'm talking about the attitude of living with people of different backgrounds, speaking different languages, different customs, and so on. You have this just very natural, instinctive, human, fleshly desire to keep things the way they are and to keep our neighborhoods pure, uh, you know what I mean, ethnically pure, and to exclude others. That's a lot of what's behind this. Listen, I've been around long, long enough, I can smell a rat. And so people are being all fired up because they have this 
this racial bias. It's interesting that much of that is coming from conservative churches because the fact of the matter is, over the past 50 years, do you know where most Christian conversions have come from in America? Among Hispanics. There have been more conversions among undocumented Hispanics in this country than any other group in the country for the past decades. So, I'm not justifying illegal behavior. I'm really not. All I'm saying is that if you have the mind of Christ and a Great Commission mentality, you can't help but notice that. And regardless of what the governments do or what the laws are, you're just watching God's providence at work. And you're realizing he's doing something important. And so when you end up with an undocumented Hispanic neighbor, you love him and treat him like the Old Testament says you should treat the gare, the, the foreigner, the alien, the sojourner, the alien, the, the immigrant. There are many, many verses in the Old Testament about immigrants and the New Testament. So you, you see, Paul is saying this. He will sometimes judge his church. And you can see our church being judged, our, many of our denominations being judged and cut off through apostasy. At the same time, he's bringing in another group. And that's what he's saying here. The elect Gentiles are being gathered into a multi-ethnic Israel. This is the only Israel there's to be. It is to be multinational. So a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, look at verse 26. This is a controversial verse. We're going to spend several minutes on it. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what exegetes ask themselves, scholars ask themselves, theologians, who is all Israel? What does Paul mean here? Well, there are about three different ways to look at it. And uh, just as Paul says, I think all of us have to be careful not to get too uppity here because he does use the word mystery. There is a lot of mystery here. And there are some legitimate uh, ways in which one can look at this. We'd we may not all agree on it. I'm going to give you my opinion on it. But let's look at the three most likely options. First of all, when he says all Israel, he could mean all elect Israel. In other words, he's just referring to the argument he's already made. That God is keeping his promises to Israel. And all along, the Israel he meant and promised to were the believers, the elect Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that when he says all Israel, let's go back to Romans 9. Remember this argument begins in Romans 9, 1, especially 9, 6, and goes all the way through Romans 11. So this, you've got to try to interpret Romans 11 in context of Romans 9 through 11. And if you look at Romans 9, verse 6, he says, It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, or literally it says in the Greek, for not all who are of Israel are Israel. And ESV here is translated, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So basically he says, not all who are of Israel are Israel. So he's using the word Israel in two senses. Not all who are of Israel, the ethnic Israel, are Israel, the elect Israel. You see how he's using in verse 6, he shows you that he's looking at Israel from two different perspectives. One is ethnicity and the other is election. And he's saying they're not the same. That's where you made your mistake. You thought the promise was to all ethnic Jews. Wrong. It was always to the elect. That's the point he makes in Romans 9, remember? So remember how he indicates there are two different Israels. So this second interpretation says, that all Israel is this Israel, the elect Israel that includes Jews and Gentiles, and that he's using Israel in verse 26 in a more holistic sense to include Jews and Gentiles, that he's relabeling, rebranding Israel, that it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just stop for a minute. Well, let's not. We'll come back to it because actually that's my preferred interpretation. So we'll come back to it. The third interpretation is this. And it's reflected in your ESV notes because Tom Schreiner, who wrote those notes, uh, holds this view, along with a lot of other people, including Stott. Uh, the view would be this, that he's saying all Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles come in, 
then we'll see the fullness of Israel. And so the thought is that we're living in the day of, of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are still coming in. But there's coming a day when that, will, that season will end and the fullness of Israel will come about. Just as he said, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if your inclusion now is a result of their exclusion, how wonderful would it be if we have both your inclusion and their inclusion? And so some scholars, and I think this is probably the most popular view now among evangelicals, is that there seems to be a day coming when there'll be a massive turning of ethnic Jewish people to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll see a massive inclusion of Jewish people so that we can truly say all Israel, not every single individual, of course, but all Israel, speaking of them as a group, will be saved because they'll come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's not confused on this point. There is no salvation for anybody, Jew, Gentile, or anybody else, who do not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what these scholars are saying, there will be a day when the Jews will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in massive numbers. And that's probably the most popular view. But I want to go back to number two, where Paul is actually using Israel in a different sense here. Now, this is the view of Augustine in the uh, 5th century. Uh, it would be the view of Calvin and Luther. And I just find myself kind of going back to the classical position, not because of them, but because of the argument in Romans 9 through 11. And the argument is that he's saying the promises were always to the elect. And then he shows us, and I make the points here in the notes below. And let's, let's just walk through here. The context is chapters 9 through 11. That's the first point. So you, you have to go back to chapter 9 to see what point he's really making. Number two, Paul uses Israel in two senses, Romans 9, 9, 6. He's already shown us that he has two Israels in mind the ethnic Israel, and the elect Israel. And thirdly, the olive tree analogy points to only one redeemed people. The olive tree in the Old Testament refers to Israel. But the olive tree here in Romans 11, look at it, it includes the wild olive shoots. So you're not saved as a wild olive tree, and then you've got the cultivated olive tree over here, so you've got two different saved people. No, no, no. You're grafted into this tree. So there's only one tree. And this seems to me to be an overwhelming argument. This is the very analogy he uses. We're talking about one church. And it's the old, ancient Jewish church into which we Gentiles got grafted in. And uh, fourthly, the grafted and regrafted branches belong to the same tree. So we're all, we're all getting our nurture from the same tree, the, the, the vine of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, the mystery of the gospel that you see in verse, uh, where was I? Uh, the word mystery in verse 25. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. He uses the word mystery for the gospel in several places. And certainly in Ephesians 3, 6, he says, here's the mystery of the gospel. That the Jews are, I mean, I'm sorry, the Gentiles are fellow heirs with believing Jews and are heirs of all the promises of God. So when he's talking about mystery, that's the very mystery of the gospel. Uh, certainly there's a mystery that uh, one died for all. That's a mystery. But in, in Ephesians, he says, here's, another, here's the horizontal aspect of the ministry that these wild Gentiles now receive the Jewish promises. That's a mystery. So he's already explained that in Ephesians chapter 3. So when he uses it here, it's the same thing. Here's the mystery. Israel is not made up only of ethnic Jews. It's made up of wild olive shoots as well. And then sixthly, there's no indication here in this text of a separate blessing upon ethnic Israel apart from the new Gentile believers. In other words, there's no way for Israel to be blessed apart from being in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're in the church and so you're going to be blessed with the Gentiles. There's no indication of a separate blessing for Jewish people, and neither is there an explicit promise of a massive conversion among ethnic Jews. So I'd have to say that the more popular modern interpretation seems to me to be uh, rather speculative. Now, you'll find the arguments in the footnotes of the ESV for the other position that the word Israel is used for ethnic Israel in verse 25 uh, and certainly in verse 28, he's referring to ethnic Israel there. I understand that. So 
the word Israel in verse 26 is surrounded by allusions to ethnic Israel. That's just the point. That he's showing you, yes, ethnic Israel this, ethnic Israel that, but in God's majestic and mysterious plan of salvation, all Israel really is saved so that all the Old Testament promises really are kept. That's his big point. So he's saying all Israel is saved just as promised to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And here's the way they're saved, through the Christian plan of salvation, with both Jews and Gentiles being grafted in to the same olive tree. Now, we'll see in just a moment why these things are important. It sounds like very esoteric theology, but uh, we'll get to the point in a minute. Now, in verses 28 through 32, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He is saying that elect ethnic Israel is being gathered into a new multi-ethnic Israel. So he's making the same statement. Right now, not only are the Gentiles being included in a multi-ethnic church, but Israel's being included in a multi-ethnic church. Right now, Israel, as you look at them as a nation, he's saying, are enemies of the gospel. We can say the same thing today. That Judaism is an enemy of the gospel. It is. And if you have a nation built on Judaism, they're opposed to the gospel. For, for the gospel's sake, they're enemies. But then he goes on to say, but regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What he's saying is, there's still some elect people in Israel. There are elect people in Judaism. They haven't come to believe in Jesus Christ yet. But for the sake of the forefathers, this, this, this uh, issue of God's creation of ethnic Israel back to Abraham still has ripples in our own day. And there are still elect Jews that are to be led, that are to, be led to Christ out there. We're to evangelize them. So he's saying, don't forget the Jewish people just because they've opposed you. And listen, Paul's writing from Corinth. Think about the opposition he faced in the synagogue in Corinth. He had just come from Ephesus. Think about the opposition he'd received in Ephesus. He got trashed everywhere he went by the synagogues. So he's preaching to himself. And he's saying, don't give up on these people. And just like you don't give up on anybody who opposes the gospel. Because you don't know they may be the elect of God. And Paul's making that same argument for his own people's sake, the Jewish people. He's saying, don't write them off just because they collect themselves in a religion and oppose you. Yes, for the sake of the gospel, they're opposing the gospel. But they may very well be the people of God to be grafted back into the olive tree. Now, <clears throat> thirdly, uh, C, God's plan of salvation glorifies God. So ultimately, the reason for the Christian plan of salvation is because this glorifies God more than anything else. When you bring Jew and Gentile together, so they love each other like family and they intermarry and they become one body and they worship God together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have the most powerful miracle that could ever occur. And we want to replicate that in every nation of the world where all the ethnic groups in all the 196 nations of the world, all those ethnic groups and all those nations come to Jesus Christ and join in one church from all different ethnic groups and worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. And there we see the mystery and the magic, once again, of the gospel. All of this glorifies God, and that's the reason that Paul gets to the end of this. He can't help himself. Before he goes on to Romans 12 to talk about the ethical implications of the gospel of Christ, he has to celebrate the gospel of Christ. He's overwhelmed with the knowledge and the wisdom of God and the power of God. And this this encomium of praise here has to be one of the most beautiful in all the Bible because God's plan of salvation glorifies God. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now lastly, so what? Five things. Here are some implications. First of all, our Jewish friends must be evangelized. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying it to us today. This is the reason I think he's speaking of one Israel, by the way, in Galatians 6, he calls the church the Israel of God. In Romans 2, he says, circumcision makes no difference. What makes a difference is your heart. So he's showing over and over again in his writings how he sees that the church is the new Israel of God. And he's, he's saying, but he's saying here, don't forget to evangelize those who have up until now rejected the gospel. God is able to graft them back in. 
And don't patronize them for heaven's sakes by saying, well, you know, they're sincere in their religion. I'm going to be sincere in mine. We'll just let God work it out at the end. No, you just, you just assign someone to hell when you do that. There's only one way of salvation. Jesus said it clearly. No one comes to the Father by, by, by me. Peter said it clearly. Paul said it clearly. There's one way of salvation. So love for our Jewish neighbor means we continue to evangelize him. That's what Paul is saying. Secondly, all in Christ are the children of Abram and heirs to all the promises of God. So Paul says in Galatians 3 and 4 in particular that if you are in Jesus Christ, you are the children of Abraham. Do you get this? That everything promised to Abraham, that he would have a great name, a great nation, a great land, all of that falls upon you. You're going to have a great name, great land, a great people, and so on. And of course, we see in Revelation 21, 22 how that works out. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and you're ushered into your new city and you, have, you own the universe. So you're the children of Abraham if you believe in Jesus Christ. You're the Israel of God. Thirdly, the Old Testament is the believer's family history. And what I mean by that is when you realize that you're an Israel, you're a true Israelite, you re- now read the Old Testament very differently. That's your family book. The sins of Israel are your sins. The, the corporate sins of Israel are your corporate sins. You're all part of it. You deserve judgment just like they did. And you receive grace just like they did. And when God says that He's going to turn from His judgment and be kind to His people, He's talking to you. You're in His people. So you get your Bible back. And when I first learned these concepts, I was just amazed at how meaningful the Old Testament now was to me. Fourthly, we are all saved by grace. The Old Testament, saved by grace. New Testament, saved by grace. You're not saved in the Old Testament by law. Paul proves that in Romans. He shows that the Old Testament never taught salvation by works. It always taught salvation by grace. So when you see that there's one Israel, one covenant that God makes with all of His people, you realize that grace is not just for New Testament era, but for Old Testament. Likewise, we are all bound to obey the law of God, number five. So the law is not just meant for Israelite, ethnic Israelites in the Old Testament. The law of God is meant for Gentiles too in the New Testament. So we're law-abiding. We look at the Word of God and seek to discern what the eternal law of God is. And we don't just say, well, you know, those ethnic Israelites, they were saved by law, we're saved by grace. Baloney, they were saved by grace, you're saved by grace. They were bound to keep the law, you're bound to keep the law. So you, buy, you not only get your Old Testament back, but the whole Bible is united as one covenant with God and His people in which we are saved by grace. And as His sons now, we are obligated to keep His law, not for our justification, but for His glory. We're bound to keep His law. So that's the reason this chapter is important. I hope you've enjoyed our little journey through Romans chapter 11. (laughs) Let's, Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word, all of it, even the more technical parts of it, the more theological parts of it as we've just studied. We pray that You'll help us to take all of Your Word and apply it to life. And now, Lord, make us grateful to be men grafted in through faith into Your ancient olive tree, Make us humble to know that we're there only through faith and by the grace of God. Make us evangelistic in reaching around to all people, including our Jewish neighbors, to welcome them and invite them into the blessings of the covenant through Jesus Christ and give to us a glorious, radiant vision for the future when you will come back and gather all your people to yourself and pour out the promises that you gave us even to Abraham. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.